from Relay FM, this is Analog episode number 45. Today's show is brought to you by Kept, Hover, and Red Hat. My name is Mike Hurley, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Casey Liss. Hello, Casey Liss. Hello, Mike Hurley. How are you? I am very well, sir. How are you? I'm sad. Oh, what's that about? Well, because we're not in the same room anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, we're, we're currently all in the WWDC Blues state. It's yep. true. Think. I tell you what, though, um, every year before WWDC, I'm so excited to see my friends, and I'm so excited to learn during the conference, and hopefully that'll continue, and I'll keep getting tickets, and I'm so excited to be in San Francisco and 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 just be in the area, you know, and, and, and see everyone, and then by about mm, Wednesday or Thursday every year, I'm still excited to see my friends. I'm still excited to learn at the conference. But man, I'm ready to get out of San Francisco. <laughs> after a while, it just grates on me. I don't know about you. Uh, San Francisco is a place. Is a weird place. It's a place unlike any other. But yeah. uh, like you, I'm I'm always just happy to be around people. Um, and it is always sad when you have to see that go. Yep. And so uh, it was a little. It was it was happy awkward to be in the room with you for this. I don't know if you felt the same way. This is uh, during the last episode, but it was different. It was different because we're not used to seeing each other when we record. Yeah, no, not at all. It is a, it's a different experience. I mean, I was looking at my computer a lot, so it was, I was, you know, that was me trying to make it feel a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, but no, it was good. I was glad to see you. I was glad to see the rest of, well, not all of, but most of Relay FM. Um, I was glad to see my ATP co-hosts and see other friends, um, but many of whom are, you know, mutual friends of ours like Dermot and Adam and Chris Harris and, and so many other people, Mateus. And um, it was a great time. Really glad I went. Was really, really excited to come home to Aaron and Declan. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Hopefully we'll be able to rendezvous some way, somehow before this time next year. Yep. What was it like to, to come back home again? Uh, I assume it was a different kind of feeling to you, to the usual? Maybe? Yeah. You know, it's weird because I always miss Aaron a lot. And I did this year too. But it's a little different when you have the little baby at home as well. And it was tough because, you know, I came in and, you know, I saw Aaron and then I, you know, went to see Declan. And of course, it was like two in the morning or something like that by the time I got home. And um, and so I looked at him and I wanted to just like pick him up and hold him. But I couldn't because he was asleep and I didn't want to wake him up. You know, if you learned anything as a new parent, the, the first lesson is for the love of all that is good and holy, never wake up a sleeping child. So, um, so yeah, so I was a little bit sad that I couldn't like pick him up and, uh, and say hi, but he, he seemed pretty excited the next morning to see me when Aaron and I went and woke, woke him up because it was daytime. Um, and you don't want to let him sleep too long during, you know, into the morning. So anyway, it was good. It was good. It was great to see him. Great to see Aaron. It was weird though. It was, it was different. Um, yeah, I, it, I was even more excited to come home than I usually am. And it's funny because I think I might have said this on a previous show, but uh, Sean Blanc said to me, I don't know, a week or two before WBDC, he was asking when we were all coming back. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to get home really late Friday. And he said to me in a very nice way, he said something like, oh, man, how can you be away from your family that long? And, I, and I, I, it wasn't intended to be offensive. It wasn't offensive. But I thought about it and I was like, huh yeah, this is going to kind of suck, actually. <laughs> and I mean, I think that coming home Friday night was the right answer. Like I, a lot of people stayed like um, underscore stayed until Saturday morning. Um, Marco and John stayed until Saturday. morning. I did. You stayed until Saturday morning. And in a lot of ways, I, I'm sad that I missed out on whatever it is that happened Friday night. Although I think we were all pretty wiped at that point. Um, but well, Friday was super chill from what I saw anyway. Mm. 
which actually, to be honest, sounds extraordinarily appealing because that's the other thing about WWDC is that as I get older, I'm less enthralled with like the kind of parties that it seems like we always somehow find ourselves in. Um, And by that, I generally mean just something very loud and very crowded. And so um, one of the highlights of my week was being able to go to uh, Jason Snell's house for dinner on Thursday with with. You know, most of the relay folks, and and it was nice to be able to talk with everyone quietly. Yeah, I enjoyed that a lot, actually, like a lot, a lot. That was my, I think, it might have been my favorite part of the week. Yeah, it was really awesome. Anyway, enough about that. What else is going on? How is coming home for you? I I don't know if I know where I am. Still. Oh man, I am suffering with this jet lag. Going so, east is the worst. Oh god, this is this is bad though. So it's Thursday. Right, mm-hmm. and right now I think it's Thursday. Right, it is all day. I seriously, this week I don't even know what day of the week it is. I came home on Sunday, so I flew home. Uh, I left at noon San Francisco time, and it was a direct flight. It's a direct flight, ten and a half hours. I had Wi-Fi again. It was oh, great. Nice. Noon San Francisco time on Saturday is what you said, right? Yeah, that's what. If I didn't say that, that was what I meant to say. It was noon. On Saturday. I just want to make sure I have my story straight here. I arrived home at 7 a.m. London time on Sunday. Ouch. So I didn't sleep because that's only 11 p.m. San Francisco time. I did not sleep on the plane. Actually, I fell asleep as soon as I got on the plane. No idea why. I was asleep for maybe 20 minutes, and then one of the attendants woke me up to ask me if I needed one of those customs cards. (laughs) That early in the flight? Yeah, and my thought was, do we need to do this right now? Like, did yeah. you have to do that? Like, I could have got like three or four hours sleep there, maybe. You never know. Right. But then I didn't sleep a wink, wasn't tired. I got back in London at seven o'clock in the morning, and about 1 p.m., I fell asleep for an hour, and then basically would fall asleep for 10 minutes every hour <laughs> until 9 p.m. When I was out, I was just gone. I was, and then I woke up at three a.m. Oh. on Monday morning, fell back to sleep at five, and then woke up at eight. Oh, that's not terrible. But this, my my saga does not end here. Oh, okay. So it is Thursday, both on Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night. I have not fell asleep before three a.m. Oh, that's terrible. Yep. Oh, I would be a lunatic right now if I were you. So it's. And and then I'm waking up all kinds of different times. Like I woke up at eight, eleven, and seven. I think have been my my time. So I'm not getting a lot of sleep right now, Casey. Oh, this is not good. That's so like I sound I sound super tired right now, but it's half past one in the afternoon. Hmm. That's not good. I, I that's the thing is that you know going eastbound is the worst. Like going westbound, I actually typically don't have many very many problems with because your day I have is no just, problems right your day is just super long it's it's a it's an insanely long day but it's super but it's it's doable because you you're, you don't miss a sleep or you don't feel like you did the thing is like this day that my first day was also a super long day but the problem is my body is trying to battle things that really in the in the wrong way so like when i fly west i just wake up early Right. which is fine. I right. wake up at like 7, 6 or 7 in the morning. And that is more doable than not being able to sleep until 3. You know, oh, like yeah. it, it kind of works. It's like I could fall asleep at like 12, 1 a.m., wake up at 6, and that's fine. But going to sleep at 3 and waking up at 7, that is a that is a problem. 
Yeah, that's no good. I, I am I am an insufferable jerk when I have not slept well. And I can't imagine what it what I would act like if I had not slept well for nearly a week. What's the time difference between San Francisco and London? Eight hours. Oof, that's a lot. Yep. Yep. Yeah. When I uh years and years and years ago I went to um Finland for work. It was in April. And I want to say the time difference was about eight hours um, at the time. And I remember vividly for like three days when I got home. It was surprisingly it was when I got home, which is weird because I just told you that eastbound is much worse. But it was when I got home that I was a disaster for easily three or four days. I don't know why. It will get you, man. It will get you. That's weird. There are all sorts of tips and tricks about jet lag and how to avoid it. And, you know, I think we talked about what Aaron had recommended, which, and not that she's the only one, but what Aaron had recommended about staying up as long as you can and trying to go to bed at a reasonable hour for that time zone. I've heard a lot of people, I think I might have heard this from uh, Horace uh, Deju. I don't know, forgive me, I don't know how to pronounce his surname properly. But anyways, uh, from Horace, I heard that if you start eating on the... um, on the time zone that you're going to be arriving in. So even if you're eating breakfast at like three in the afternoon or whatever, if you start doing that, it'll also help your body get acclimated in advance and make it a little easier. But I don't know, man, it's no matter what you do, it's terrible. Yeah. I, I've, there are lots of like different things that people suggest, but I don't know if any of them truly work. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, uh, any other follow up that we should discuss or do you want to tell me about something that's cool? I'm going to tell you about something that's cool, I think. I Excellent. think now is the time to hear about an awesome thing. And we have a new sponsor this week. Ooh. And it's it's a great little app called Kept. Um, K-E-P-T, Kept. Kept is an iOS app that can help you manage your cloud services all in one place. Kept currently works with Dropbox, Google Drive, and OneDrive with support for Box coming soon. Once you have all these accounts set up in the app, you'll be able to see all of your online storage files in one list. Kept will let you easily transfer a file from one service to another with just one-click previewing and the ability to add your favorite files too for easy access later. Kept will even let you unzip zip files so you can easily share what's inside with the apps that you use daily on your iOS devices. Kept can also scan paper documents with the quick snapshot feature, and you can even see all of the free and used space on each of your cloud storage accounts, making it easy to keep everything in check and know where you've got to put that big file next. Kept makes sure that everything stays secure by allowing you to also use Touch ID too. Kept is developed by a 22-year-old student from Canada. Uh, He developed the app because he found he was having to manage a multitude of different cloud services to get the space and features that he needed, whilst also trying to get around some network restrictions at his school. So he was setting up multiple different cloud services accounts and was getting lost about what was where and who was which and so forth. Having to constantly switch back and forth, emailing documents to himself, it was just becoming so much of a pain that he decided to create Kept to make sure that he could very easily move things around and always have his stuff with him. With Kept, you can make sure that your files that you have across all of these different services are all in one place, allowing you to take advantage of all the available storage space that you have over the different cloud services that you use without it being a nightmare to try and keep it managed. You can find out more about Kept at keptapp.io or you can find Kept in the App Store. Thank you so much to Kept for supporting this week's episode of Analog. Excellent. So what are we talking about today, Mike? Well, I did my homework, finally. Oh, excellent. And which homework would that be? I have watched the movie Sneakers. I have, if you listen, they're my notes. Ah, uh, are they in field about notes? About the movie. 
This in a field notes, of course. Well, what else would it be in? Uh, darn if I know. Just want to make sure. So this is a true um, analog style mic at the movies. <laughs> Why the do you movie. say that? Because it's a movie that I haven't seen, and we're talking about it on the show, okay. and you've seen it. So yes. I like it. It's, it's a nice little feature. It's now going, it's leaking out across different shows now. I feel like um, Upgrade tends to be the the instigator of several um, relay-wide, I don't know, maybe not events, memes. but memes. Yeah, like uh, uh, Follow Out is now a thing. That, that yep. to, my, to my ears and eyes, that began with Upgrade. Uh, Mike at the Movies is now a thing, although I think Jason's a little perturbed at me for having chosen sneakers, but sorry, Jason. Um, and I think there's other stuff. Oh, the verticals also originated in Upgrade. Mm-hmm. It's important. It's important for the network. It is a real, a real originator. <laughs> so, i tell you what I'm going to do. Yep. I'm going to start off by telling you what I knew before I watched this movie. Please. Then I want you to tell people a little bit about the movie and why it's important to you. Okay. That sounds good. So I knew kind of nothing about this movie. I know that you like it a lot. I know that Stephen likes it because he kept telling me in San Francisco. Um, <laughs> I knew that it was something about computers mm-hmm. and that it was set in San Francisco. And for some reason, I believed that it was a comedy. Uh, that's not too far from the truth. But This movie's on. no comedy, man. and I'll get to that in a bit. Oh, God. Uh, oh, God. This that's all I knew about this movie. Okay. The, but the main thing that I knew was that you really loved it. So can you explain a little bit about this movie, why it's important to you and why you enjoy it? Sure. And and I think we should warn people that coming up very soon there will be spoilers. So I uh, I will avoid them for the next moment or two, but at any moment it could happen. So be prepared. Yeah, just Except from now on, from this very word that I'm saying right now, this sentence, that we're in spoiler territory. So if you want to see the movie, see the movie. If you don't want to see the movie, continue to listen anyway. It's perfectly fine. Yep. No one's, no one's going to get upset. That's correct. All right. So um, I saw this movie years ago. It came out when? 92? Is that right? Let me. Yeah, 92. Okay. That's what IMDb tells me anyway. Okay. Um, it came out in 92. So in 92, I was 10. And I don't remember seeing it when it was like in the theaters or anything like that. But I'm pretty sure I see I had seen it just a couple of years after. And when I was 10 years old, I was already really deeply into computers. I mean, I don't remember specifically when that started, but it was early. And at the, at that time, there weren't, to my recollection anyway, that many movies that kind of centered around computers. Now, I would argue in looking back on it as an adult now that this really isn't as much about computers as I had recalled. It's not like a war games, for example, which I thought, which I think was comparatively more about computers. But nonetheless, it, it was a lot, largely about computers, and um, and it was just it was an enjoyable movie. I just really thought it was fun. I thought and think it was very funny. Although now I'm scared to talk to you about that. <laughs> um, I thought it was. Uh, the the right combination of like funny and I don't know if I should say action necessarily, but things happening. You know, in man, in many ways, have you seen the movie True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger? No, I don't think so. All right, that's the next one then. But um, in in many ways, where True Lies was kind of a really wonderful blend of action and comedy, this to me lighter on the action and heavier on the nerd stuff. But it was a nice blend of like nerdy things and comedy. And I just always thought it was a fascinating movie and always thought it was really cool. And I think one of the things that I loved and continue to love about it 
is that it occasionally does get a little ham-fisted about the technology, but it was not so egregious that I that that it took me out of the film. It wasn't so bad that I said, "Oh, oh god, seriously people?" No, that's not how this works. Now, I'm sure there there are other nerds listening to this, particularly if you have any sort of interest in cryptography, who are hurting their eyes from rolling them so hard. But for someone who doesn't really care that much about cryptography and doesn't know very much about crypto- cryptography, I thought that they handled the technical bits just fine. It was a little hand wavy, but not so bad that it was ridiculous. And it was and it was specific enough to keep a, a, a nerd interested. So I just I've always loved this movie. I've always thought it was fun. I made Aaron watch this not too long after we started dating. Uh, doing this as as Mike at the movies gave me an excuse to buy the Blu-ray, which I was really excited about. Uh, I just really have in, always enjoyed this movie. I can't think of a scene that I don't care for in it. It uh, it's one of my favorites. Okay. Um. So my notes are obviously in chronological order. So I'm going to run through yep. them. Me as well. And I'm. And I, I'm assuming, how many times do you think you've seen this movie? Not that many, to be honest. Probably 10 or 20, which, considering the oh way... Oh, my word. That's a, that's a lot, though. Oh, God. You asked me about Hunt for October. That number's probably like 150. So, um, yeah, I've Why seen... didn't you choose that one instead of this, just out of interest? Um, that one seems to be more of a favorite movie. Hunt for October is possibly my favorite movie of all time. The problem with Hunt for October is it's a very cerebral movie and not a lot really happens on screen. And for most people, this isn't a a, a backhanded attack on you. Most people don't care for that kind of movie. In fact, I would say that generally speaking, I don't care for that kind of movie, but for whatever reason, Hunt just clicked for me. Um, This one is still a little on the cerebral side, but I find that a lot more happens on screen and it's a lot easier to get into than a hunt for October is. Okay, well, that makes sense then. So, I'm just going to kind of talk about it. We can talk through it together, and I can kind of tell you my feelings about the movie as we are going along. Would you Would you like to tell me your overall impression, or would you rather save that until the end? I would like to save that until the end. Okay. Because it there, I have many different feelings, okay. and I can only fully explain them once I've gone through. It, so. <laughs> okay. So many feels. The first thing that I was really, uh, really interested in and surprised about is how good the cast is in this movie. Oh yeah, it really is phenomenal. Like it's, it is a very strong cast. Like mm-hmm. people like Sidney Poitier, uh, Robert Redford, um, who else? Dan Aykroyd. Which, by the way, how how good looking is Robert Redford? I don't know how I never realized this. Such a good looking man. My goodness. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, where is. have I been for all this time? But he's an attractive fellow. Um, but this is a very good cast, and wasn't what I expected. I didn't even really look up who was in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, ben Kingsley is yep. in this movie. Um, I was very surprised by this because uh, also for some reason I thought they were going to be young people. Oh, interesting. Okay. Again, not I had not I had not really done my homework here. Mm-hmm. Even though I kind of had seen the poster and stuff, I hadn't really paid attention to the people in the bottom right corner mm-hmm. to see that they were all old and wrinkly. Wow. But no, you're right. Uh, David Strathairn, I don't know how to pronounce his surname. You'd know, the, I didn't know his name, but you'd know the, the actor if you saw him. Uh, River Phoenix was in it. Um, uh, James Earl Jones was in it. All sorts of unbelievably great uh, cast members. So one of the things that I'm going to really struggle with is remembering the characters' names. That's so fine. That's fine. We begin with a... Uh, hacking scene 
mm-hmm. in like when is this the early 60s or something i think it was i think they said 69 and for what i found out was that building i saw this on imdb that building i didn't notice is, this either i'm so glad you saw this is the town hall from hill valley and back to the future yeah yeah it's the clock tower which is magical yeah, I, I saw that this morning, actually, because it occurred to me I hadn't looked at IMDb myself. And I thought, oh, man, I should check that out real quick. And I was reading, 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 and I almost fell out of my chair because I was like, oh, my God, Mike is going to love this. And I'm a little disappointed that you saw that because I was hoping to blow your mind with that little tidbit. But isn't that pretty awesome? I thought that was fantastic. Yep. So that's about three and a half minutes into the movie. You get a very brief look at the uh, clock tower from Hill Valley. So they are hacking bank accounts basically transferring bad people's money in inverted commas to charitable account to charitable causes mm-hmm. so taking money from it's basically robin hood is that yeah, yeah. this this is modeled and they they mention this later in the movie but they are doing a a robin hood type scenario here yep um and what are the names is it like max matt uh there's marty uh, marty that's it marty uh, okay we'll get to that later yeah actually that makes sense because it's um it's marty from hill valley right <laughs> oh, that's just too. That's getting too weird now, right? Uh, it's Marty and uh, Cosmo. Cosmo, Cosmo is the is the the one who eventually gets lost, and I'll leave it at that for now. Well, I mean, we can say it right now. So they they get caught, and Cosmo gets arrested, right? Because what happened was Marty decides to go out for for food. Well, they they, they decide they want to have some pizza and so cosmo does this like you know sleight of hand magician's trick where he takes what was it like a coin or something and yeah. puts it you know does one of those things where it, it's in one of his two hands but you can't tell which one it is and he has marty pick out which hand the coin would be in the, with the premise being that if marty finds the coin then cosmo will go and get the pizza if marty yeah. doesn't find the coin then 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 cosmo or i'm sorry then marty will have to go out in the snow and go get the pizza so marty goes out in the snow to go get the pizza next thing you know police show up and they capture cosmo so then we go to the to the present day and which to be fair we, is 92 or whatever yeah but like the present day in the movie right. and uh it, for all intents and purposes, looks like Robert Redford's character, Marty, has assembled a new crew. Mm-hmm. Um, they have an ex-CIA guy. Yep. Which, which is Crease. Crease. Mm-hmm. They have uh, a blind guy who seems to just be like an expert stuff. Right? <laughs> I'm not really 100% sure what his, his whistler, his name is, what his, yep. what his skills are. They just seem to be everything. That's pretty much accurate. And we're introduced to him reading uh, Playboy in Braille, <laughs> yeah. which is which is really great. Uh, and then we have Mother, played by Dan Aykroyd, who, again, I don't really know what his skill is. He just seems really good at stuff. <laughs> right? That that kind of none of the characters seem to really have a skill that is specific. It's like, oh, that's the computer guy, that's the wiretap guy. They all seem to be able to do everything. Yeah, and then I think they that's have fair. they have a younger guy uh, played by River Phoenix. His name's Carl, and they're like a team of like ex cons basically. Mm-hmm. And it looks like they're breaking into a bank, which they are doing. But they, you know, and you're not like are these crim- are these guys criminals? Are they Robin Hood characters? Are they working for the police? Are they undercover? Um, and then it ends up being that they are basically uh, they are like for hire. They they break security systems for hire. Right. So the idea being that. The bank is is concerned that someone nefarious will be coming in and stealing their money. So what they do is they hire someone who is used to being nefarious, but is on the up and up. 
to go in and steal their money. And then what happens is Robert Redford takes out like 80 grand or something like that, which he did not earn. You know, he stole $80,000. He gets it in a suitcase, brings it upstairs to all the, you know, the, the board and uh, says, yeah, you know, you guys have some things to work on. And then gets a, what we assume is a small check for his time. Right, exactly. So, uh, so yeah, so it's interesting because I was reflecting on this um, both uh, when I watched it a, about a week or so ago and I was reflecting on it when I was rewatching a little bit last night and this morning. And you're probably going to take me to task for this, and that's okay. But it's what's interesting to me is that this movie, in retrospect, kind of struck me as half Ocean's Eleven and half Avengers. In that, it was this kind of, like, ragtag crew, all of whom have their own, like, unique things. Although, to your point, Mike, you're never really clear what those unique fe- uh, skills are. But they have these unique skills and, and, and features about themselves, and they come together, and the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And it's and it was very Ocean's Eleven-y in that you're stealing things, and, and it's a ragtag crew, very, like, Avengers, where it's kind of, you know, well, I guess Ocean's is really funny as well. But um, it just, I don't know, it struck me as kind of this... This very fun, like, group caper movie, which the way I'm describing it now sounds more Oceans than Avengers. I don't know. Does that make any sense at all? I understand what you're saying. <laughs> like, that it's a group of people, you know, we have a very, we have a set of very specific skills. What is it? Particular skills? Anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that basically, that's it, right? It's like just this pe- group of people who are unlikely when they are. Like they're unlikely to get along, and they are unlikely heroes, but somehow they all work together to right. pull off what they need to pull off. And like you know, there's there's tension between them, that kind of thing. It is that it is that premise. I I will, I will agree on that. All right. So they go and steal some money from the bank. They give the money right back. They get a check, like you said. Um, yep. Then we see their super cool San Francisco startup office. Yeah, <laughs> which apparently was a thing even in 92. And the, the comedy behind all this is I had asked you to watch this, I don't know, months ago. And then it ended up that we thought we were going to be able to talk about it last week. And it wasn't until I watched the movie again right before I left for San Francisco that I remembered that it took place in San Francisco. So there was almost this beautiful synergy, and I hate myself for saying that, but there was almost this beautiful synergy of us um, watching or discussing a movie about San Francisco from San Francisco. Now it turns out we, we we were just too busy to get to it, and that's fine. But I but I was fairly proud of myself um, for accidentally stumbling upon such a good um, such a such a good setup like that. Now, if you'll permit me to go back just a second, I wanted to make an observation about the humor in this movie. And w- one of the reasons I think I really enjoy this movie now as an adult is because a lot of the humor is very subtle. And what I'd written down was that it's participatory. In a lot of movies, there's a joke told and the punchline is spoken. Whereas in this movie, I feel like a lot of times the jokes are told and then the punchline is is, is silent. You have to kind of fill that in. Or the entire joke is quiet and, and silent. And so an example of this is um, when they were breaking into the bank, um, River Phoenix is putting on like black paint all over his face. And Sidney Portier walks up and just kind of looks at him. And if you're not really paying close attention, you're like, what the, what's the issue? And then you realize, well, River Phoenix is painting his face black right in front of Sidney Portier. That's kind of not appropriate. 
And yeah, it, but then there are other things though. So like I understand that, but there are other jokes that are just slapstick. Oh sure, sure. So like at one point, like they're trying to run it into the building, and Robert Redford tries to jump over the counter <laughs> right. and hits his leg and tumbles over. Right. And then he's like, "I'm getting too old for this." So they used that old line. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I get what you mean, but there are the comedy is really mismatched. That's so, fair. Like, this is like I have a, I have a note here, right, saying uh, this is not the movie that I expected. Like it feels much more serious, and at this, like you know, it feels like it's an actual good movie rather than some a of the silly. other stuff that I've watched. Like you know, like I watch like Real Genius and stuff like that, which are like fun, silly movies mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. become cult movies. And I was expecting something more like that, like a fun comedy movie, oh, that's, rather that's than tough. a a movie that seems to actually have some real drama in it. Right. Okay. That if you came to this with that frame of mind, which is perfectly reasonable, it will not surprise me if at the end of our discussion you say it was meh. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, and and it's an example of a uh, to kind of build on what you were saying, Mike, of a less subtle and more um, outgoing, I guess, uh, joke was to continue on the narrative. They get back to the office and then they have visitors. And somebody walks up to to Martin, um, walks up to Robert Redford and says, oh, we have guests. And I think it was Carl comes up and uh, and Martin yeah, says does. to him, well, OK, well, I'll get to them in a minute. And they said, no, 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 I think you should talk to him now. OK, well, so Robert Redford says, well, what are their what do their shoes look like? And the answer was expensive. And so yep. immediately uh, uh, Martin goes running over to uh, to go talk to these two. And, and that's that's that was a joke that was told completely verbally. Um, but I still thought was kind of funny. I don't know. That made me laugh each time I watched it. Um, and uh, these guys are the NSA, which is funny. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing that struck me about this movie is that it's it's surprisingly prescient given what Americans especially. Actually, that's not even yep. fair. You guys have been going through a lot of this, too. Um, uh, what what a lot of the Western world is going through with regard to like spying and um, and personal privacy and stuff like that. So we meet the NSA and I didn't write down the specifics, but um, they introduce themselves as, as these two guys from the NSA to to Marty and. And Marty says something along the lines of, oh, you're the guys breathing on the other end of the phone when I'm when I'm having a phone call. And they giggle and they're like, no, 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 that's the, I don't know, CIA or something like that. And he's and then he says something along the lines of, oh, you're the ones that go and kill foreign people. That's not the actual line, but something like that. And they say, no, 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 that's the FBI or something. I'm getting I'm getting the details wrong, but they like have this tongue in cheek exchange about all these different portions of the American government. But here it is. Fast forward. What is it? 20 years now. And the NSA is not everyone's friend anymore you know there's been a lot of drama about what's going on with the nsa these days and so a lot of this movie was was far more prescient than i expected yeah for sure so the the nsa comes to martin what are, what are they asking for so they're basically they want i got i can't really 100 percent remember what they were asking like they were basically like I don't think I actually caught this at the time, like what they really actually wanted, but it was it was basically along the lines of, there is a job that we need you to do. Can you go and do the job? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, they have to go and steal something, right? They're told to go steal something. Right. This box, which is really important or something right. like and that. Right, the, and the, the premise or the, the understanding that Marty quickly comes to is, this is the NSA. If this was something on the up and up, they would not be coming to a private consulting firm, which is which is a nice way of describing uh, Marty's crew. They wouldn't be coming to a private consulting firm in order to seek out something. They would have just gone and gotten it or asked the FBI or asked the CIA. 
So if they're going outside of the government in order to acquire this thing, whatever it may be, that probably indicates they're trying to keep something for themselves and keep it away from the other branches of government. And then that that makes you wonder, why are they doing that? Something is not on the up and up. But as they leave, they say to, to Marty, you know, because Marty's kind of, you know, sticking his heels in the sand and or sticking his head in the sand. Jeez. Uh, he's he's. Trying to, trying to stay firm. And he's saying, no, 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 I don't know if that's appropriate. I don't know if that's right, blah, blah, blah. And so then on the way out, the one guy says to him something like, oh, well, you know, I, I hope everything goes well for you, Mr. Bryce. And what you have to understand is at this point, we already know that that Marty had changed his name to, uh, shoot, what was it now? I'm drawing a blank. Bishop, uh, Marty Bishop. And so by the, by the NSA guy saying, okay, well, I hope everything goes all right for you, Mr. Bryce, that's, that's a quiet acknowledgement that these guys know his past. And, and Marty's been running from this past, running from having been almost arrested for like 20 or 30 years at this point. So obviously they know something, and that puts him in an uncomfortable position that he knows that they know, and he can figure out that they will probably use that against him if he doesn't comply. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it's the the tradition like you know the traditional blackmail scenario yep, yep it's like we got this on you buddy like if you know if you want if you want to live you got to do this job <laughs> exactly that, that kind of idea so eventually he acquiesces and he says all right uh i'll go ahead and do it um and he and he has to come back to the crew right and then so this is where we have one of the other sh- strange like this is where we have one of the other strange comedy things so they go to like do a stakeout, and they're they're like at, they're like they basically have to go and steal this box from a professor of mathematics. Mm-hmm. And whilst they're there, this woman comes in and it starts getting frisky with this guy with that they're 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 observing, and then they're all kind of being like peeping toms. So it's this is just like this this the comedy in this movie is so strange to me. Because you're right, it follows multiple different tracks, which was something that I also found with, that I did find with Real Genius. And it, I think it might be that I don't, I couldn't find how the writing of this movie went. There are multiple writers, and I wonder if it went through multiple rounds where people mm-hmm. were adding different layers of comedy in. Mm-hmm. Because the comedy in this movie is there, but it wildly varies. Yeah, I never, movie. I never felt like that was the case. But hearing you des- describe it, I can totally see where you're coming from on that. Um, and it's like here's some here's some clever comedy, here's some slapstick comedy, here's some teen like comedy movie com- like kind of stuff, like American Pie type stuff. <laughs> right. And to your point, when when the when the girlfriend um, of Doctor Janik, who is the the professor that they need to steal something from, when she comes in and gets frisky, you know. Um, I, somebody's looking through a video camera, which is, you know, the size of a, I don't know, a shoebox because it's 92. Um, they're looking through the video camera and then Carl, the the basically teenager, I think he was like 20 or 21 at the time, is like, hey, can I watch? Can I watch? And of course they look at him like, no, 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 of course, get out of here. And then if, then Sidney Portier comes over and is like, all right, Marty, let me see. And of course, because he's the old established guy, you know, uh, uh, Marty gets out of the way and lets him watch, which is pretty funny. But um but yeah, so so this woman comes in, gets frisky with Dr. Janik, and they're they're having this peeping Tom moment. And what they're trying to do is capture Dr. Janik entering his password on the computer. Um, and, and so this way they can eventually break into Dr. Janik's office 
and enter the password on his computer and get what inf whatever information they want out of his computer. The problem, though, is that this frisky young lady is is a, is blocking their view from the next building over into his office of him typing his password. Yeah, so this is one of the first issues that I have, right? So later on, so they're filming this password entering thing and then they do, they take it back to their startup office and they do zoom and enhance. Mm -hmm. And it's like, uh, yeah. zoom in, zoom in, yeah, enhance, that would never work. and then they can see it. Oh, that would never work. Because, I mean, if you look at a VHS tape today, it is comical how bad the resolution is on that. And that's basically what they were zooming and enhancing. I don't know, you know, you make an interesting point because that did not bother me at all when I watched it. And I guess it's because I was in the frame of mind that I wanted it to work. Whereas when I've seen other films that I feel like are completely ham-fisted through and through, I just, those sorts of things really grate on me. So if you, Mike, weren't in the, weren't in the frame of mind where you really wanted this, to, where you really wanted to buy it, then that would probably annoy the crap out of me. Yeah. Did it annoy you? I think so. That's fair. But did, how did you feel? So they're they're discussing. They're trying to figure out where this this device is that they've been that the NSA has tasked them to find. And so sure. their their thought is, all right, well, we'll start with the computer. And then they're playing this tape back of of Doctor Janik entering his password. And meanwhile, his girlfriend, whose name escapes me, is saying in the tape, "I, I left a message on the, on your service, and you didn't call me." And they're playing this segment over and over and over again. And you're trying to figure out as a movie, or at least I was trying to figure out, okay, what letters is he typing there? Meanwhile, Whistler, the blind guy's in the background and he says, I know where the box is. I know where, or where the thing we're looking for is. And of course, everyone looks back at him and they're like, wow, you're blind. How is that possible? And he says, just listen. And so they play it over and over again. And you keep hearing, oh, I left a message on the service and you didn't call me. I left a message on the service and you didn't call me. And eventually it occurs to them, well, holy crap, if, if Dr. Janik has an answering machine service or an answering service or whatever, why does he have an answering machine sitting on his desk? And I thought that was very clever and very cool. Oh, okay. Now I understand it. See, this is the issue. Like, I didn't think about answering service. I was just thinking about the answering machine because uh, that doesn't really okay. ring true with me mm -hmm. as a thing that exists. Now I understand it. And perhaps... Perhaps the problem is it's so it's such an old movie that they didn't say, like, I left you a voicemail. Because I think that would have made a little more sense, right? Why would you have a voicemail and also an answering machine, you know? Yeah, so this this is one of the things. This is the arc, one of the arcs of the movie that I really like, which is that uh, Whistler, right, his name's Whistler, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. has, it's, it's like his nickname, has skills that, others don't have because he has enhanced senses and thinks about sound in a different way. And I actually quite like that arc, like of his superpower, basically. Mm -hmm. Yep, I agree. Um, I think I think that that's really cool and it and it adds a different method to some of the decisions that they make. So so then uh Marty goes to basically break in. And I really like the door kicking scene. It's very funny. Basically he's trying to figure out how to get into Dr. Janik's office and he has one of those old school like pin code doorknobs, right? And they, they're discussing via radio how to get through this pin code. And they show Marty like kind of holding his ear, you know, like a, like a news anchor would. And he's going, yep, mm-hmm, uh-huh, yep, okay, uh-huh. And this goes on for, for an uncomfortable amount of time. 
then they the, and you don't hear what's happening all you see is yep uh-huh uh-huh yep and then he squares up against the door and you're thinking okay now he's going to walk up slowly and dramatically and he's going to you know enter the password or you know use some device to get into the door and then what happens he kicks the door in <laughs> which i just thought was hysterical because here it is you expect this like tremendous lecture to have resulted in some hyper complex uh series of steps and what ends up happening is he kicks the door in. So I like that scene, but it, again, it just makes me question: like, what is this movie mm-hmm. trying to be? Yeah, I, like, I can understand. I can't that. work out what it's trying to be. I can understand. Um, that. That's where I feel at this point, anyway. Uh, then there's this whole back and forth scene. You know, more slapsticky again. So it's like a whole slapstick section where he's talking. The girlfriend comes and finds him, and he's trying to con- like, trying to convince her that he's a private detective hired by the uh, mathematician's wife to investigate his affair. That kind of thing. right. Who? I mean, this is all uh, Robert Redford, Marty going out on a limb. He doesn't know if the yeah. guy's married. He doesn't. He doesn't know any of this. He's just trying to fake a story in order to get her to not say anything to Doctor Janik. Yeah, there's a lot of social engineering in this. I was movie. just about to say that. You're absolutely right. So, which is which is a nice it's a nice kind of uh parallel with the hacking that they're doing. Mm-hmm. They they admit, you know, that they come they admit to the fact that social engineering is as important. That there's a lot of that that goes on in this movie, a lot of disguises, a lot of that kind of things. Yep. Which I, I like that part. I I really do like that part of it, that it's not just people sitting behind computers hacking into bank accounts for two hours. Yeah, I agree. Another piece that I thought was very clever and was well done was right after they get the box, they have a holiday party or what appears to be a holiday party. Maybe it was just a regular party um, to celebrate having gotten the box. And they show Liz, who we haven't talked about yet, but this is Marty's ex-girlfriend who accompanied him to like go meet or, or to, to kind of stalk really uh, uh, Dr. Janik. Well, anyways, I don't understand Liz in this movie. Because when Robert Redford initially goes to her, he's like, I can't do this without you. That's mm-hmm. a ho- He keeps saying that to her, like, I can't do this without That's you. That's true. But she doesn't bring any skills. Uh, well, she does later. She hasn't What yet. does she bring? No, we can skip ahead, but okay. like, what? Well, when she goes... I mean, she, she, de- she goes out on the date with the guy, right? Mm-hmm. But it's... I was expecting and hoping that she would have a secret super skill, like some of the other guys do, in this movie yeah, that I makes see what you're saying. I mean she she does the whole social engineering stuff well, that's what like, I was, I was hope she doesn't she is not as as uh they do not make her as important as some of the other characters in the movie which which is upsetting to me I, I wanted to see a, a strong character there like she had some sort of like I don't know breaking and entering skills that they really needed because it's like the way that she set up is like we cannot do this without you but like she is not needed in that whole section She's yeah, needed later for for a fair. task that he doesn't know that he needs to do at that point. No, that's fair. And I do think that she does play a pivotal role in the movie, especially later on. But I, but your criticism about early on when we initially meet her, I do think that's fair. So yeah, so we're back at the uh, we're back at the uh, the boys' club with Liz there, um, and they show like this mont. Well, I don't know if montage is the right way to describe it. They show little clips of each of the crew dancing with Liz. And yeah. I thought it was so well done how each of them danced. Like, as silly as it sounds, because Whistler, you know, he's blind, so he doesn't know what he looks like, so he's just completely all over the place. Crease was extremely reserved. 
uh, Dan Aykroyd, and this mates not only with our perception of Dan Aykroyd, but with his but with his character mother, is controlled but very enthusiastic. River Phoenix is just like completely out of control, like a kid would be, and you just get these like little glimpses of each character in the way that they dance with Liz. I just thought it was really well handled. I thought it was funny. Yeah, no, right. I agree. It's good. It is good. I like that. Okay, so then because that does a, that's a good bit of character development because it shows a little bit more about each person's personality, right? And the way that they dance and the way that they react to other people, and that whole scene is really good for character development as a whole. Mm-hmm. I agree. And so what they do is they have you know they have a little dinner, they have some drinks, they end up some of them are playing Scrabble, and then uh, Whistler decides he wants to kind of dig into this box and see what's going on. And so he and um, Carl and Mother start, you know, they open up the box and, and plug it into one of their computers and they start kind of fumbling around trying to figure out what's going on. And that leads them to, to figure out this is a code breaker. And that's what you were starting to say a minute ago. Yeah, and it's kind of the most powerful thing in the world. Right. It, it, the, the premise that they, they, that they put out and that we're, that we're kind of instructed to believe is that this will break any code. And that's scary so what they do is they you know uh, whistler says you know plug in a phone number for a computer system that is unbreakable and they start with what like the federal reserve in culpepper actually which is not too terribly far from where i am um and so they break into the federal reserve or they they dial the federal reserve and you see just a bunch of gobbledygook on the on the screen you know kind of looks like the matrix if you will and then they somehow do something with the box to kind of like get the box in between the screen and the computer and suddenly you see all of this matrix-like code turn into actual text that you can read. And so they realize, oh my God, this is a code breaker. So they try the Federal Reserve. They tried like the power grid, is that right? And they tried like um, air traffic control out in San Francisco. Yep. And they realize yep. that they, they have access to all of these things. And suddenly everything gets tense. At the same time, at the Scrabble game, uh, Marty and, and, and Liz particularly are thinking about the name of the research group that Dr. Janik works for. And it's presented as C-Tech Astronomy, S-E-T-E-C, Astronomy. And they start playing, what is the name? I can't think of the term for this kind of a, a word, but they start playing with all the letters from C-Tech Astronomy and trying to build other words out of them. Yeah, they're like playing Scrabble. And like when they're playing Scrabble, it's like Robert Redford has like this like moment of realization. Right, he has his epiphany. Yeah. And so they start trying to figure out, okay, well, what, what else could the letters in C-Tech Astronomy spell? And they come up with like some awkward and odd, um, odd ideas. I forget what they were offhand. But, uh, of course, because it's a movie, right around the time that Whistler is reali- realizing, holy crap, I can get into anything, they realize, wait a second, C-Tech Astronomy can also spell too many secrets. And so all of a sudden you're realizing things are afoot here and everything is not as it seems. Yeah. All right. Well, at this point, I think now that we've done kind of the big reveal, shall we talk about something that's awesome? Sounds like a great idea, Mr. Casey Liz. This week's episode of Analog is brought to you by Hover. Hover is my favorite place to buy domain names. And after you use them for the first time, if you've not before, they're going to be your favorite place too because they make it super easy. They make it painless to buy and manage 
all of your domain names. When you go to hover.com with an idea for a URL that you've been looking for, for one that you've, you know, been fighting about, you've been trying and trying and trying over and over again to come up with a name for a project that you're working on and you just want to go and buy the domain, that is where Hover excels. You just go to their website, hover.com, you type in what you're looking for and if it's available, you can just click through and I'm not kidding, you can do all of this within about three minutes, which I've done so many times. And that is a case of like, you find the domain, you select the one you want, you enter your payment information, and you're done. You don't get... because And the reason that this is so quick is because they have a great service that works well, but they also don't show you a million different screens in between you trying to buy something and finishing it to try and upsell you on a bunch of crap, basically. Hover doesn't do any of that stuff. They give you the things that you need, and you can choose to buy what you want, and you can add on services if you want, like Hover do email stuff, they do storage for that, they do forwarding, they do all of that. And you can buy that stuff if you want to, but they don't upsell you on it and try and get in your way of just buying a domain easily. They have all of the TLDs that you expect. They have .com, .co, .me, .net, .co.uk, .fm they have now as well. So you can buy all of those if you want. They also have uh, some of the more interesting options uh, like .coffee, .fish, plumbing.academy. You can get all of those if you like. Hover.com domains start at $12.99 and every domain that offers who is privacy, Hover give it to you for free and they enable it by default, which is fantastic. It means that your private information is kept private, which is very, very important. Hover have fantastic support as well. They have a no hold, no wait, no transfer telephone support policy. They're famous for this, and there's a really good reason why, because when you call Hover, you'll be talking to an actual human being. You don't have to talk to robots. You don't have to decide whether they're robots or not on the other side of the phone. (laughs) You like that, huh? You just get through to a real person. But they also have great email support. They have great documents and guides as well to get so you can get what you need if you just want to get it that way. Hover have their valet service. They'll take all of the hassle out of switching from your current provider because you just let them do it all for you. They will just go to your current provider and get all your domains and move them to Hover for free. So go right now to Hover.com and use the code HUGS, H-U-G-S, Yes, nice. check out. Thank you. And you'll get 10% of your first purchase over at hover.com and show your support for analog and all of Relay FM. That is code HUGS for 10% off your first purchase. Thank you so much to Hover for their help this week and for sponsoring the show. Excellent. Uh, before we move on really quickly, I, I forgot to point out that from the sound of it anyway, it sounded like Mother was using one of those IBM Model M keyboards that all the keyboard nuts totally fetishize which I thought was kind of funny. And that's probably because that was the modern keyboard of the day. That was just the keyboard. They weren't looking for something specific. So there is a, a, a turn at this point, right? So I was expecting the movie to take a turn. Um, they discover they've got this thing here. And then there's this scene between Crease and is it Liz? Mm-hmm. Where, she wants to leave and Chris is like, you can't leave. We can't trust anyone. We're here for the whole night until the NSA guys come and pick up this box. Right. And even more than that, though, because it somehow or another, and I don't think we ever really figured out how, it was made clear that Liz knew Marty's secret and she was pretty much the only one. So according to Chris, who is ex-CIA, there's a pretty good shot that she was the one who had talked. And so because of that, she's suspect, which actually is a little bit weird because that kind of just goes away for the rest of the movie. And if I were Liz, I'd be pretty bothered by it. But 
be that as it may, they stay overnight. Kreese gets out his re- his revolver or whatever it is, his handgun, because he's freaking out. And they all realize, and one of them says to the other, any government in the world would be willing to kill all of them to get that box. And so they're freaking out. So I'm expecting now that the movie is about to take a real turn and we're going to see some extreme character development and people not trusting each other. And that's where the movie's going to go. That is what I expect the rest of this movie is going to be. Interesting. Okay. Right, that it's going to be babysitting the box until the NSA people come, and you're going to see real turmoil because you can feel the drama in it. Mm -hmm. But then they just skip to the next day, and the NSA (laughs) people pick up the box, and I'm like, "Uh, this isn't the movie I was expecting anymore. This is something that keeps happening to me. Is I keep having the rug pulled out from under me, trying to work out what this movie is. I can understand that. I never ever thought of it that way, but I totally understand what you're saying. That's weird. and then there's like there's this line that I've written down that I quite like. The NSA doesn't kill people. Yeah. <laughs> there's just this thing about it where it's like yep. I'm sure they don't, but it's just funny in the, the today to hear like just people talking about the NSA. Mm-hmm. Uh because of all the peculiar weird things that they do. Yep. Um so then there's you know these there there are these whole scenes basically of uh, they they go to do the drop off with the box and like to the, the the machine, and they realize some bad stuff's happened. Kreese has found out that the mathematician's been murdered, so he expects that, that um, Marty's about to get murdered. Uh, Robert Redford's character, so they make a run for it. Well, basically. right. So, so I thought it was it was kind of clever and funny. So Marty has walked up, I don't know, like a hundred yards away from maybe less from Kreese, and um, and so he's giving the box over. He gives the two NSA agents the box. Which, by the way, the older NSA agent will forever and always be Malcolm from The Rocketeer uh, to me. Have you seen The Rocketeer? No. Oh, God. We, this show is going to turn into Mike at the Movies. This is why Mike at the Movies exists, because I like movies, but I just seem to have not seen any of the movies everybody else has seen. Right. What did I say before was going to be the next one, Hunt? No. Something else. It doesn't matter. Who knows? Whatever it is, I am now telling you without question that The Rocketeer is the next Mike at the Movies on Analog. It's happening. Okay. One of my favorites. You can claim it. I mean, the thing with because you're saying about this with Jason, we're doing '80s movies, right? That is the thing that me and Jason are focusing on right now. And actually, The Rocketeer, I believe, is a '90s movie as well. So maybe I've accidentally stumbled onto '90s movies with you. <laughs> yeah, it's '91. Yep. So you 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 can you can potentially claim that. Yeah, I'm going to claim the, the '90s. 90s. I'll claim the yeah. '90s. And uh, if you ever do it unconnected, they can get the aughts or whatever. But uh, anyway, just movies from the future. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's right. Uh, uh, Alex Sabinski said in the chat it was True Lies, which actually I think is also the '90s. All right, we're going to have to put both of them on because True Lies is also one of my favorites. Although I think I'd take Rocketeer yep. over True 94. Lies. '94. Yep. Um, so yeah. So anyway. So so Marty's over at like what appears to be an outdoor like coffee shop or whatever, talking to the two NSA agents, and he gives them the box, but has not yet collected the check. And um, one of the NSA agents is reaching into his briefcase ostensibly to get a check, although then we're wondering maybe it's to get a firearm to kill Marty. And Kreese calls from the car, waving one of those corded car phones from 92 or 91 or whatever it is. Hey, Marty, it's a telephone. And of course, Marty's like, yeah, and, you know, I'll, I'll get to it in a minute. And then Kreese says very obviously in a way that very obviously indicates that something is wrong. It's your mother, which very clever, which is very clever. It's like the whole reason that he's called mother 
is for that line. Yeah, it very well may be, to be honest. I like writing like that. There, there are movies that I, that I appreciate when there's a payoff for a, right. a, just a little, what seems like a, just a random decision, there ends up being a payoff for it that I like. Right, right. There, there is a comedy movie that I really enjoy. Oh, no, it's Arrested Development, where like maybe is called maybe just for the joke that her name is maybe and that they can say it. It's like your cousin maybe. <laughs> like she's called maybe for like a joke I believe like that's written in the first like 15 minutes of the show mm-hmm. so that they name an entire character around that which I like that I like that kind of writing yeah I, th- I thought it was funny as well so so they run away from the two NSA agents which ostensibly were about to kill Marty although I swear I never saw a gun in the there was no gun so there it makes no you wonder there was no even hint at a gun right well it was like the the acting was very ominous to make you think that there was yeah. a gun. But to your point, there was no actual visual on screen, other than the way the actors were behaving, that indicated that there was, in fact, a gun in that briefcase. So, yeah. So, they go on the run, and they decide, all right, we got to figure out what, what the crap is going on here. And what what they do is they go to the office that Marty returned to to talk to the NSA agents. So the NSA agents came to his office, said, hey, you really need to do that. Okay, I hope you're. I hope things are going well for you, Mr. Bryce. And that was their, you know, like we discussed, that means Marty really needs to do what they say. So then Marty goes to their office and, and you know, says, okay, I'll do it. Well, fast forward, they, they've just given up the box. They go back to the NSA's office, and sure enough, the building is being demolished. There is no building anymore. And the two of them are, you know, Crease and Marty are really confused now. So now we're trying to figure out, well, what, what is going on here? And... The, and this this was actually, if I were to pick a least favorite portion of the movie, the portion that comes up next is my least favorite. And that is that Marty, for lack of some something else to do and something better to do, he decides to kind of kidnap his friend, some Russian spy that we had met earlier that was mostly inconsequential. Did you understand this? Because this, this actually seemed very ham-fisted to me. It's like for some reason they, he blames him. Yeah, and I think part of the problem is you and I don't have the, like, we hate Russia blood that that people of the 90s did. You know what I mean? Like, this was still in a time when Russia was an unknown and Russia was was that uncomfortable uncomfortable place far away that may not be looking out for our best interests. Kind of like Americans, I think, often think of China today. You know, nothing that China's doing is wrong, but it seems like they kind of have their their hands in a lot of different pots. Yeah. and so what ends up happening is he goes to his friend, the Russian spy, and the Russian spy brings out his like dossier book or whatever and, and starts flipping through pictures of old government agents or, or ex-government agents that they were trying to turn. And sure enough, they land on the guy from the Rocketeer, Buddy Wallace, who was one of the two NSA agents. And, you know, the Russian says in so many words, oh, this guy's really bad news. This is a big problem. And then they get pulled over. And... Thing and this, I guess the point of the scene was to really emphasize how screwed Marty and his crew were. But yeah. as they're getting pulled over, the Russian guy—I forget his name now—says, um, "You know, th- will, will you take our asylum?" Right, because it, this car, strictly speaking, is part of the Russian consulate, the Russian consulate, the Russian embassy, whatever. So I can offer you asylum in the limo. Do you want our protection? And Robert Redford, very confused. Marty is like, eh, I'm all right, thanks. I, I really like this one scene. So this this part of, will you take our protection? Will you take our asylum? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just really liked that. Well, it's a very, I don't know, subtle isn't the right word, but it's a very 
quiet way of establishing things are really bad. Like this is Marty's in bad shape right now. And it really does amp up the drama quite a bit. Then everyone gets murdered. Right. So, so like dark turn murder. Yep, exactly. And so Marty had carried a gun with him to kidnap his Russian friend and they find the FBI or the the people who self identifies the FBI. Anyway, they find the gun and they use it to kill his Russian friend and his limo driver. And that is hugely unfortunate. At this point, I feel like I want to turn my hand to how I feel about this movie. Okay. Up until this point, I am enjoying the movie. There are weird things happening. The comedy's strange. I don't really understand it. And some of the, the turns that the movie makes, I don't understand. This is where the movie becomes a bad movie. Okay. It is at this point, because everything that happens after this, I don't... There, not every, The majority of stuff that happens after this, I just don't like. And there are a couple of key points and key figures in this movie from this point on that ruin it for me. And primarily, it is Ben Kingsley. Really? And I'll explain why. Which so the thing is, you may not see what I am about. What I will say. So well, that's that's probably for the best. So. Yeah, there is a huge plot twist, uh, which I don't. I didn't actually see coming. Nor did they I. say the guy's dead. Mm-hmm. Right, the, that Cosmo is dead. He died in prison. Yep. Turns out Cosmo's alive. He is Ben Kingsley. And all along, he has been working for this shady agency. This, like, who, did I even say who it is? Well, what they had said was that he had worked for, um, like, the mafia. They didn't. Yeah, I don't think like they said the word. Crime. But, right, organized crime. And he laughs and says, "Oh well, it wasn't that organized." And so, I guess somehow or another, he gets in with with the mafia in prison and starts kind of cooking their books for them. And being a guy who's really good with computers and thus spreadsheets, because apparently anyone who's good with computers has to be good with spreadsheets, um, he he gets into like money laundering and cooking the books and whatnot. And then from there, it's kind of very hand wavy. But what you're supposed to glean from it is he's trying to take over the world. Um, yeah. But what, what we're skipping a couple of somewhat important steps. So as after the Russian guy has been killed. All of a sudden, you see the guy from the Rocketeer, Buddy Wallace, the guy from the NSA, come up to Marty and like clock him in the head with his pistol. And Marty's thrown, oh, yeah. Marty's thrown in the trunk of some car and is taken on a ride. And you're hearing like him going down the highway and all sorts of different things. And the, the screen is pitch black. And then you'll see like little clips of the car. And then it's pitch black. And eventually... He gets hit in the head a lot. Yes. Like, I'm worried for his mental health this. <laughs> And so, you know, eventually they stop and they realize that Marty is, is still awake. And, and the, the guy from the NSA, I forget, his, I forget what he says, but he says something like, oh, you shouldn't be awake and clocks him in the head again. And, but eventually, eventually Marty wakes up in what turns out to be Cosmo's, Cosmo's office, like you had said. And they talk about how, you know, Cosmo's trying to take over the world. And they do the same dance that they did in the beginning of the movie where, like, pause it. What, you know, somebody... I forget the details, but, you know, a bunch of people decide or a news article comes out that a bank is not very secure. You know, so what happens because of that? And this is all like them just, you know, shucking and jiving. Oh, so, you know, a bank, people say a bank isn't secure. So what happens? So all these people go to the bank. They take all the money out of the bank. The bank folds. And they're doing this like kind of thought exercise around social engineering, which is the same thing they did in the beginning of the movie. And they come to find out 
kind of sort of hand wavy that Cosmo's basically trying to take over the world or not even necessarily take over the world. He's trying to like break the world's economy. Yeah, he he sees a pleasure and game in destroying it. Right. And it's very like James Bond, actually. It just occurred to me as we were talking. Like a very, I, I just want to see the world burn, which I know is a Batman reference, but like it's a very James Bond, like I just want everything to be broken kind of a, kind of a villain. And y- so did you care for, did you not care for Ben Kingsley in the role? Did you not care for Cosmo's character? What was it about Ben Kingsley that you didn't like? He has the worst American accent ever committed to film. Oh, I actually didn't think it was bad. I mean, there were certain things that flew out. It's terrible. Like, it's terrible. You can. I think the problem was they tried to make him have a New York accent, which I right. don't yeah. think worked as well. Like, if he was just a straight American, I think it would have worked. But like the he says one word in an American accent, which is Marty. Yeah, Marty, and then he put, and then he's just talking in his London accent. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. It's like me doing it. It's like Marty. <laughs> how you doing today, mate? Like it's the worst. It's so bad, and like. He oh just will be talking like this and goes, Marty. And it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> it is one of the worst American accents I've ever heard. It is just atrocious. He just doesn't even bother. It's like nobody even cares. Like, th- this is, the, this is right, from this point on in this movie, there are a bunch of things that happen which I think show a lack of care in the movie. Interesting, okay. So the next part about this, which is the next scene, Oh wait, hold on. Wait, well, really quickly. One other thing with um, with Marty. with with Marty and uh, and Ben Kingsley and Cosmo. Uh, did you happen to notice? And I would expect not because you have to be a special kind of nerd to notice this. Did you notice what they were sitting on when they were in um, when they were in his office? It was a bank of computer stuff. Is all I know. Right. So as it turns out, they were they they, they kind of walk around for a minute in in this just chasm of an office, and they go into this like what appears to be silent chamber, and they're sitting on something that has lights running through it, and it kind of looks like a couch. But as it turns out, that's actually a very famous Cray supercomputer, and at the time the movie was filmed, that was the most powerful computer in the world. And I don't know if it was real, I don't know if it was just a prop, but. It was kind of a nod to those of us who are super nerds and could identify that, that here it is, there's a Cray sitting in this guy's, in like the CEO of this company's office, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, So anyway, so then um, they leave um, Cosmo's office and Marty is dumped back into San Francisco and he goes to find Liz because why, Mike? Because he can't do it without Liz. He can't do it without her. Oh, and I'm sorry. It, it, well, you skipped a step. This is my fault. Um, he also, uh, Cosmo also uses the box to hack into like the FBI's computers or whatever it is and give the FBI information about Mar- Marty Bishop. His alias is Martin Bryce or vice versa. So if they go looking for Martin Bryce, they'll find Marty Bishop. And up until this point, Robert Redford had completely divorced himself from his from his birth name so now robert redford knows he's screwed because not only does the fbi or whoever have his alias but it stands to reason that he's going to be pinned for killing alexi or whatever the uh russian guy's name was and his driver so he's he's on a there's a ticking time bomb going on here and they dump him back in san francisco and he goes to liz because why because he can't do it without liz this is one of the other really bad scenes in the movie. Marty shows up at Liz's at whatever hour in the morning. And 
he's clearly in a bad shape. He's all ruffled up. He's got marks on his head where he's been smacked like over and over and over again. <laughs> and uh, she's like really nonchalant about it. Yeah. Like he even says, I got hit in the head twice and thrown out of a speeding car. She has no reaction and then goes, oh? Yeah. Like it doesn't make any sense. Like then they just move on. Mm-hmm. Like she's not concerned. She's not scared. Nothing happens, and I can't understand it. Like he has told her, it's like he's not even joking, and like he's obviously not making a joke because she could see because she reacted to the fact that he. She's like, "You look a mess," mm-hmm. and it's like I got hit in the head twice and thrown out of a speeding car, and she's just like, "All right," yeah. And I don't understand the direction in this scene. Like she just doesn't care, and I don't understand it. Yeah, I, I can. It get feels like that. it was just completely overlooked, and I don't really know why. Yeah, that makes sense. So eventually what they end up doing is they call in the crew to come to Liz's because obviously their office is not going to work anymore. And yeah, they got the new safe house. Right. So they use Liz's as a safe house and got, I don't know what San Francisco real estate prices were back then, but today that was probably like a $30 million apartment. <laughs> that place was mammoth. But anyway, what they end up doing is they unload all their like crazy equipment into Liz's place. And they go back and forth. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And Kreese decides, all right, we're going to call the government because obviously this quote unquote NSA people that we were seeing before clearly weren't actually the NSA. So we're going to call the government. We're going to see if we can make a deal with them and see if we can get their protection. So they unload all their equipment and they're in Liz's place. And, and Mother explains that they've hooked up, I forget what they call it, but basically a polygraph to the phone line. Which doesn't make any sense. Eh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Because it's, it's, I don't know what the line is reading. Like, what is the line reading? So it's supposed to read, <laughs> like, they have, like, a little graph, like a polygraph. And it's supposed to read um, the stress in the other person's voice. As but a, it, I'm, aren't polygraphs done by, like, uh, your heartbeat? Yeah, and I think uh, perspiration on your skin and a few other metrics. <laughs> we'll just overlook that. They do it by his voice somehow. We'll just, whatever. <laughs> this, is what I'm, this is what I was saying earlier. Like, Movie magic. This, that, yeah, it's, it's artistic license. I get that. Yeah, and to me, I was like, yeah, sure, that's fine. Whereas if you tell me something that's like half as egregious in some movie that I didn't really care for, I will go on for hours about how terrible it was. But for whatever reason, I bought it. So they have the polygraph hooked up. They have the like super convenient um, computer monitor showing exactly what hops this call is making around the planet to prevent the government from tracing it. And some way, somehow, they're getting this beautiful readout of how far the trace has come, how close the trace has come to them, which actually, as I really think about it, makes no damn sense either. But, um, but, the, but Marty makes the call. Now, did you realize who was on the other line? Which actor was on the other line? No, not until he arrives later on. Oh, okay, interesting. So we'll leave that for now. But he makes You've already call. spoiled it. You said it at the start of the show. Oh, that's true. So it's James Earl Jones on the other one, <laughs> so, which is kind of cool. That's a cameo that I don't think I had expected. But um, No, this, James... it's the cast of this movie is incredible. It really is. So he talks to James Earl Jones, and he says, you know, basically, can you, can you protect me? And James Earl Jones, in so many words, says, I don't, I'm not going to give you crap unless you have the box. And right before... Um, right before they hang up, because Whistler's monitoring the trace from the government, and Whistler's saying, okay, they're getting closer, getting closer. Oh, my God, hang up, hang up, hang up. Right as they're hanging up, you know, Marty says, can you protect me? 
And James Earl Jones says yes. And you see the little fake polygraph go crazy, indicating that, okay, he's full of crap. So they realize the only thing they can reasonably do is go get this box from, um, from, from Cosmo's office. And they have to figure out how do they go about doing that. So they, they realize they need to get this box from the office, but where the hell is the office? Do you, like and so they because Marty was in the back of a van or a trunk. He was in a trunk. Oh yeah, yeah. See, mm-hmm. and so they have to figure out. Well, how do we figure out where Cosmo's office is? Because he never saw. He got clocked in the head when he when when his Russian friend got shot. He got put in a trunk. Then he woke up in Cosmo's office. So Whistler starts asking, "Well, what did it sound like?" And so they do this really awesome dance where Marty and Whistler are trying to figure out based on sound alone where this office is and so they start playing back you know marty says well i was on a freeway and so and it had like dividers in the concrete and so they start doing this thing where like whistler comes up and plays like a synthetic version of the um of the car going down the road and and marty says no that's too fast and he slows it down no it's too high pitched and and he makes it lower pitched and they start to piece piece together where this was and so they ask okay well last night was it foggy in in san francisco and surprisingly the answer was no and so or maybe the answer was yes one way or the other they they determined based on whether or not a foghorn was heard that it couldn't have been the golden gate bridge taking them out of san francisco and i, I don't know anything about the bay area but apparently there's only two or three other options this is four bridges or something and right they're like well, could you hear bumps in the road he's like yeah i could hear these bumps in the road so they work out it's this bridge and it's right. very clever i really really like this scene as like a way of doing some detection by sound and that was what i was mentioning about earlier so i'm actually glad that you brought this one up because i'd forgotten it was here right. and I, I really like that i think it's a really nice way of leading up to like oh we know where we're going and then they go on the road and it's like i, I feel like we're uh it's like is there anything else you can remember it's like it sounded like we were driving through a cocktail party and he's like oh okay we'll go this way and they arrive at this area and all you can see is just the four characters standing on this like little mound and it's like this was what you were talking about and And you can hear what sounds like a cocktail party in the background and it's just a huge gaggle of geese (laughs) which i thought was just really well done and i thought that was very clever and uh and i and i really like that now to be fair at this point and maybe this is me subtly kind of agreeing with what you're saying that the second half of the movie is kind of weak i had a lot of notes up until this point and the rest of the movie, I have like five or ten notes. It and we're only about boring, halfway through the man. movie. It just gets boring. And this is the bit that I think that they were hoping would be the most exciting, like the heist part. Mm-hmm. But it's just like there is so much stuff in this section that just doesn't need to be here. Like they're showing all the planning and they're like, oh, you know, you need to They do like the my voice is my passport thing. They could have cut that whole idea out and it right. would, the movie would have been fine. Um and I know that it creates the cult moment, right? That's the thing. So basically, they need to break into Cosmo's office. They figure out, I'm not really sure how they figure it out, but they figure out that he has like these motion sensors that are heat-driven, and they figure out that in order to get into that section of the building, um, they're going to need to go in via the next-door neighbor's office. They figure out who this guy is. It's this guy, Martin Brandis. And they figure out that to get into his office, Martin's office, Martin Brandis's office, um, that they need to get through this like voice activated um, uh, door thing. And the way you do that is you say a specific phrase, you know, I think it's something like, hello, my name is uh, Martin Brandis or whatever it is. Uh, My voice is my passport. Verify me. And to your point, Mike, that's like the cult moment of this movie. So what they do is they end up, this is where Liz becomes hugely important. They send Liz out 
on a date with 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 Brandis, and they do this because he apparently he's is, a computer data, right? And they say, and I wanted to bring this up with you because given our past discussions on this show, they yeah. say it not derisively, but very very confused. It's like, he's a computer data, it's right? A, yeah. Because as well, computer data like is a, such a funny thing. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And it's not an online data because that wasn't a thing at that point. But um, but yeah. So they go and they have Liz, they they somehow orchestrate that Liz is the match for it's Warner Brandis, not Martin Brandis. Um, they have Liz match with Warner, and she has this little notebook, and it has you know, hi, my name is Warner Brandis. My voice is my passport. Verify me. And she has that written out. And as she's going through this conversation with him on this hugely awkward date with him, she's trying to cross off all the different words that she needs to record him saying so this way when when someone goes up to that door they can play back you know a hacked up version of that sentence that they got by the recording that liz made and it's just awkward and i don't know i i i didn't i didn't dislike it but i didn't particularly care for it either before we go on let me take our final break please this week's episode of analog is also brought to you by red hat it's maybe not news now that supported open source is widely accepted as the at the highest levels of enterprise computing, but the extent of adoption is probably broader than you may know, and most of the open source running in elite data centers is Red Hat. And it's more than just Red Hat Enterprise Linux too. Red Hat offers storage solutions, cloud computing, and everything that you need for application development, all open source and all enterprise grade. Their stats are eye-opening. Red Hat runs in every executive department of the US federal government. Every airline, telecom giant, and healthcare company in the Fortune Global 500, the New York Stock Exchange, and every commercial bank in the Fortune 500. In fact, more than 90% of all of the companies in the Fortune 500 use Red Hat for everything from the critical to the routine. The only thing that's really surprising now is how many people, people who know a lot about technology, don't know this. And that's why I'm here to tell you. It's almost as if Red Hat snuck in, got comfortable, and quietly transformed the technology business without making a fuss. Sometimes the most disruptive technology is the stuff that nobody notices at first. To find out more about how Red Hat is quietly redefining enterprise technology, visit redhat.com. Red Hat. Build on it. Run with it count on it excellent so from this point i think you're right that the movie does get a little bit on the slow side they end up they get the recording they need from warner brandis they get his key card because liz steals it and they go and marty tries to break in to get the box and i have now no notes from the date to when marty is discovered well and to be honest I don't either. <laughs> My next note is after he's a computer dater is when Marty is being discovered by Cosmo. Yeah, that is my that is exactly the same. So there is mishaps effectively. Right. That that's all you need to know. He's breaking in and there's mishaps and he gets discovered. Right. Like the you know uh basically Liz is getting the key card with what's the the guy's name? Warner Brandis. Warner and then Warner discovers her wallet, which has got her real name in it. She then knows that something's up. Uh, she, th- I don't know, I don't know why he thinks to make this assumption, but they go to the office. Right. I think he uh, just the the premise is he's a smart guy. Like his license plate, which they discovered earlier, is one eighty IQ, which you know that's just to try to develop his character as being a complete and super nerd. And so the 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 
I think understanding is that Warner is able to put together her awkward behavior, her demanding to for him to say the word passport at one point during dinner. Oh, uh, yeah, that's it. And he's starting to put together that something is not on the up and up. And so he brings it's her... It's the passport thing, because that yeah. was weird. That stuck out. Right. And he actually says that to her. He's like, passport. Right. And so eventually he brings Liz in to see Cosmo, among other people. They are. They eventually convince Cosmo that Liz is really just honestly been put in the wrong place at the wrong time because they go into Martin's office and or, God, I keep calling him Martin. They go into Warner's office and nothing is missing. So apparently everything's fine. They're escorting Liz out of the building, and she says, kind of nonchalantly, trying to you know ease the tension. Oh, it's the last time I'm gonna ever you know do a computer date or something along those lines. And um. And so Cosmo stops dead and he's like, wait a second. In the most, in the worst deduction, like the worst jump, no one, no one ever would ever make this jump. <laughs> that he says a computer matched her with him, right? That's, that's the jump. Right. And I think the premise is because, um, who played Liz? Mary McDonald is a very pretty lady and, and Werner Brandis is not a very attractive man. And like the whole point, the, the, the movie to this point is establishing how nerdy and, and I don't know, homely he is. Yeah, but and, the thing is, he, he makes that, which is one jump. But then from this deduction, he then believes Marty's broken into his office. Yeah, like, well, that is his next assumption. It's like, how? Yeah. How have you done this? Because he doesn't know that they're related, M- Marty and Liz. That's true. And I, I, I agree with what you're saying. And and I think I'm giving the movie a buy because, again, I want to like this movie. Um, but I think the I think the uh, when he realized that something was not right. It, it, it immediately occurred to him, why would my world, which is so under control all the time, why would something not be right with it? And there's only one reason I can think of, and it's Marty. Yeah, okay, okay. I can. I guess I can kind of see that. It's a, it's a jump. He knows Mar- He knows Marty's in play. Right, and and it's a jump. I mean, without question, it's a jump. And I don't blame you for for kind of shaking your head at it. Uh, I think, to be honest, we're both right and we're both wrong. That it is a pretty bold jump, but you could understand it in in the right scenario. So anyway, well, but so- then you also have this, right? Which is what I'm about to do verbatim mm-hmm. for you, which also frustrates me. Okay. A computer matched her with him, Marty. You know, that's what we have <laughs> as as our thing here. <laughs> you caught me while I was trying to drink take a drink of water. I almost spit it Marty, Marty must Marty. have done it. It must it's- be Marty. Marty uh, must have done it. The other Mate. thing that just occurred to me actually as we're sitting here now, Cosmo has this magical remote control that opens any door in his office anywhere. Wouldn't it have been a lot easier for them to just like figure out a way to hack a clone of that remote control rather than go through this dance of my voice is my passport, verify yeah. me? What we haven't really talked about is they, in order to trip the motion sensor or not trip the motion sensor, they had to hack into like the heating for the building and crank the heat in, in Cosmo's office to 98.6 degrees. So and then Marty can only move it two inches. A, like a, a second, second or something like that. So this, So he has to like carry this box very slowly. Um, very slowly down Cosmo's office, and and it's all it's very it's dramatic yet also a little hamfisted to kind of to your point, Mike. Um, but eventually, it you know Marty realizes okay that that or Cosmo realizes that Marty's in the building, and eventually the guy from the Rocketeer, the NSA guy that isn't an NSA guy, finds him in a heating duct, and they end up uh, talking again. 
And I don't even remember really what was said. There was just a conversation and eventually um, it ends up that, that Marty is, is scared that he's about to get killed and Cosmo's holding a gun. And so Cosmo looks at him and he says, I could never kill my friend. And he kind of goes to walk away and he looks back at the two NSA agents and he says, please kill my friend. And they go to, um, they go to kill Marty and then out of nowhere in a turn that would only happen in the movies, Carl is in the exact right spot at the exact right moment and was able to fly through the ceiling tiles exactly over the bad guys and take them out so that they can get away. Um, before this point, when they're discovered, when they've discovered Marty's in the building after the great deduction, mm-hmm. there are guards everywhere, right? And the reason that they are stuck is because the, the building is swarming with guards. Mm-hmm. Somehow, Marty, Liz, and Carl managed to run out of that door <laughs> and up to the roof, and there are no guards. That's true. Where did the guards go? Don't worry, you're because at that point. It. Everybody knows where Marty is. He's guess, in the room. Yeah, they with called Cosmo. the guard, they called the guards off because he's about to get shot. Right, 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 right. I, I, that doesn't. That's, you'd have them at the door. That doesn't make any sense. I agree. I agree. And I have. I have a note here. Like seriously, what is wrong with Ben Kingsley's accent? Marty <laughs> is this Marty New York? Give me the box, Cockney. So it's like. That. <laughs> um. Oh goodness. So they end up. So it's Carl and Liz and Marty, and they end up on the roof. And um, Mar- and uh, Carl and Liz, they climb off the roof and they get away, right? They, they run away some, some way, somehow. I don't really, I'm not really clear on what happened. There's um, like an altercation and, and they, get, they get away. Right. Well, come to find out that um, the van that the, that the crew uses in order to, you know, do their mobile like snooping or whatever, it gets taken by the guards. Well... When I say that, I mean that Crease and Mother get taken from the van, and they're out front in front of the van, and Whistler's quietly sitting in the back, freaking out. So now, the situation is, Liz and Carl just kind of disappeared. They're not a plot element anymore. Crease uh, and Mother are at gunpoint outside of the van. Marty's on the rooftop, and Whistler's in the van. And so, the only reasonable way for Marty to get out of this alive is for the van to come get him. And I just told you that Whistler, the blind man, is the only person in the van. So Marty is talking to Whistler over, like, you know, radio, walkie-talkie or whatever. And he says, all of a sudden, Whistler, you got to do it. And I think all of us, at least I was like, wait, what? And he says, you got to drive. And Whistler says, like, drive what? And so he ends up talking this blind guy into driving... In, basically into the building so that Marty can escape. And at some point it was, it, it, Whistler says, oh God, I'm driving. And uh, it was, I thought it was hysterical. Did you find that funny or did you think it was stupid? No, I like that bit. I like that bit. It was, it was a very sneakers moment. Like that's the kind of comedy I think this movie does best. And so, you know, Marty's t- from the rooftop, Marty's talking, talking um, Whistler into how to get there. And, eventually this is where Cosmo finds him and Cosmo basically says, give me the box and eventually points a gun at Marty and Marty's, you know, calling his bluff saying, Oh, you wouldn't shoot your friend. Right. And Cosmo, what does he do? He like shoots the ladder that Marty's standing on to indicate how serious he is. And Marty eventually hands over the box. 
So then, I assume he gives them a fake box, right? Mm-hmm. They never really address this. Nope. Yeah, so the the understanding is they give him a fake box. Now, I suspect it's the same fake box that um, Mother had given him to practice with earlier. I agree, but, but they never address it. No, it is definitely not addressed very clearly. So he gives Cosmo the box. He climbs down the ladder, come to find out the box is empty, which, by the way, how Cosmo couldn't figure that out by weight alone, I don't know. Yeah. But one way or the other, he gives him this empty uh, answering machine box, and he freaks out. I believe does he scream, Marty? Uh, he might have Marty. But... Marty, what are you doing to me, Marty? <laughs> <laughs> but they escape, and eventually they go back to their office because obviously Cosmo is not going to come after them, right? I mean, why would he? It's not like they got the box or anything. But apparently, the office that was no longer that was no longer safe is now safe again. And sure enough, here comes James Earl Jones. And they have a very Armageddon style, the movie that is, this is what I want in order to give up the box. Or I guess I should say Armageddon had a very sneaker style, you know, this is what we want in order to save the world. But before this, they talk about how, like, this box, or maybe it's after, this box could only be used to steal the secrets of Americans. Yes, you're right. I totally blanked over that. And it's like, yeah, because that's what the NSA does. Exactly. And so, yeah, the premise is, and this doesn't make a lot of sense to me from a technical standpoint, but the premise is the kinds of codes that the Russians use are completely different than the kinds of codes Americans use. So the only reason that an American organization would want this box is to spy on other Americans. And here again, that's a very prescient, very interesting kind of conversation about not only 90s America, but America today which is very interesting. So you're right. I'm sorry. I totally skipped over that. And then James Earl Jones arrives, and then they all bargain for what they want from the government in order to hand over the box. Now, that's interesting because I believe the box is in plain sight, and there are people with guns standing around, but it makes for a pretty funny exchange nevertheless. So they argue about what are they going to get, um, and then they eventually, uh, you know, Mother wants a Winnebago, Crease uh, wants a trip to Tahiti, and then Carl, the kid, comes up and says, I'd really like her number, because one of the FBI agents or whatever is a lady, uh, is a woman, and he says, I'd really like that woman's number, which I thought was really funny. And of course, James Earl Jones freaks out and is like, hell no, but the the woman whose name I don't remember is so flattered by this, she can't, she just gives her gives Carl her number, and I thought that was pretty funny. I like that she just reads it out. Yep, yep. Dude, no, but that doesn't happen anymore. Right, and then um, this scene unfolds, and you find out that, like, Marty says the box never worked anyway, uh, and he has a chip. Right, right. This is where the movie credits should have rolled here. Mm-hmm. But they don't. But what else did they show? There's one more scene of exposition, which oh, is... Oh, yes, yes, yes. ...of a news report. And this news report says about, like, news today, Republicans have lost all of their money. They don't know where it's gone. They are now bankrupt. And then, second, like, second story straight after, Greenpeace and Amnesty International got large donations today, and nobody knows where the money came from. Yeah, it definitely wasn't the GOP that, they, that had just become bankrupt. So yeah. here's, yeah, here's, here's my couple of issues with this. One, who did that? Uh, I would assume... That it was Marty and his crew, but I don't know. Therefore, they rebuilt that box. Yeah, fair point. So, that's an issue. Yeah. 
also it was a very cheap shot at the GOP. Like whatever it your doesn't politics, make any sense to me why they where they chose to make that decision. Yeah, and I mean whether or not your politics are are, are aligned with the, with Republicans are um, are against Republicans. I think we can all agree it was an unnecessary cheap shot, which I agree. I, I think you're right in saying that maybe it should have it, the credit should have rolled right before that. And like, are we expected to believe nobody can put two and two together? Right. It's like this is the uh, Batman. What or not? Uh, what is Superman and uh, what is his alter ego? Clark Kent. Like, yeah. it's just a, the same guy with glasses. Nobody realizes because this. This wouldn't be difficult to fix. You yep. just see what accounts the money went to and from. This is not like rocket science. Like I used to do this kind of stuff for a living, working <laughs> out where money had gone when right. it got lost. Like I don't know why they chose to do this scene. I don't know why they did it the way that they did. It leaves too many questions that are crazy. Yeah, I agree. So my overall feeling, Casey, I don't. You probably have to tell us. I was enjoying this movie, and mm-hmm. then it took a turn, and I think it ended up being a bad movie. That's okay. I'm sad because to hear Because the that, turn but... it took was so weird and some of the decisions are so bad and some of the direction is so poor from, in my eyes. Like, it, it just ruined everything that was good about the first half. Yeah, I mean, I can see why you say that. I, I can't say I agree with you, but I can totally understand how you could end up in, in, in with that opinion. Yeah, um, I don't want you to agree with me. Because, <laughs> you know, this is one of your favorite movies and I would feel yeah. bad if I spoiled it. Right. No, it's it, you haven't spoiled it. It certainly has made me take a different and more uh, hypercritical eye ding to uh, to the movie. But nevertheless, I still I still love this movie. I'll still watch this movie an, another million times. But but without question, a lot of the reason I think I enjoyed this movie was because I was predisposed to like it. You know, I, I wanted to like it. I gave it I gave it a buy on a lot of things that I don't think I would have given other movies a buy on. Um, and so I just, I genuinely, genuinely really liked it. Um, and I appreciate you sitting through all, t- both hours of this movie, because obviously the first one was not very painful, but the second hour was a little bit painful. Uh, long movie. It was fairly Two long. hours is a long movie for this. Especially for back then. Um, but I, I appreciate you going on this journey with me. I will have to have a think about whether, um, the Rocketeer or True Lies should be the next one. I... I will go out on a limb and say that you will very much like both of them. I thought you would. I thought it was fifty-fifty. You'd like this one. I'm pretty sure you're going to like both the Rocketeer and True Lies, but we'll have to see. And I'll get back to you maybe in like a couple of months. We'll do another mic at the movies and we'll figure out which one which one we want to do. Um, but I think either of them you'll like a lot. And apparently, the mic at the movies for Analog is all the '90s. So you've got the '80s with Jason. You've got the '90s with me. And uh, I don't know. Maybe you and Gray can do something on Cortex from the from the aughts. I don't know if Gray watches movies. <laughs> Probably doesn't. <laughs> Unless it's Lord of the Rings. That's true. Actually, it's funny you say that. Uh, Aaron had uh, sent me a text message and said, if you guys are going to review movies on future episodes, can I talk to Mike about Lord of the Rings? Because I do not care for Lord of the Rings. And I've Aaron seen the first one and didn't like it. Oh, Aaron's going to be so disappointed. Yep. I, I did not care for them. Um. So, yeah, I think that basically does it for Mike of the Movies this week. Uh, is there anything else we want to talk about, or are we good? No, I think we're good. All right. Well, uh, thank you for uh, going on that journey with me, Mike, and listeners. And uh, I hope that, listeners, if you watch this movie because of me, that you enjoyed it at least at least as much as Mike, if not more. How about that? No, I hope people fall on your side, because <laughs> I ended up just not liking this movie. 
All right, fair uh, enough. And, and I hope that people enjoy it, especially when we're making them watch it. Thanks again to our sponsors this week, Kept, Hover, and Red Hat, and we'll be back next time. Until then, please, Casey Liz, tell people what your passport is. <laughs> my voice is my passport. Verify me. Uh, but no, my, you can find me online at uh, Casey List, C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S. On Twitter, you can find me at CaseyList.com. You can find all of Mike's shows at Relay.fm, and you can find him on iMike, I-M-Y-K-E, uh, on Twitter. Look at that. Look at you. You went way above. I was uh, put on the spot. That was, that was stressful, but I, I made it. Okay, so Casey, I'll see you next week. <laughs> Bye, Mike. No, that was terrible. All right, I'll see you later, Mike. Better than Ben Kingsley. Yeah, right? <laughs>